Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me on the other line, she thinks that the three things a person should focus on every day are health, growth, and community. It's Danielle Hanley. Oh, thank you. That was a great one. Thank you. For the listeners at home, John offered four other interviews <laughs> I'm going to do, and I was like, Okay, but the four that you offered are more creative than anyone I've ever thought of. But that one was good. You made the right. You're selling yourself short. What was the best of the rejected options? (laughs) I mean, I really liked the uh, like she bought me a car, but she paid cash (laughs) 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 and didn't fill out the registration. If Danielle ever gives me that as a gift, I'll be extremely suspicious. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God, John, we are here. We are talking about. Uh, American Season 2, Episode 12. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this episode? Sure. It is Operation Chronicle, the name that is given to the trying to turn Stan operation, we come to learn. Directed by Andrew Bernstein, written by Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg. And, Danielle, we got a problem because I thought we were doing She-Hulk, so I only prepped for She-Hulk. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, then, and yet the notes say Americans, Operation Chronicle. So maybe you can are. tell me what the summary is and jog my memory. <laughs> oh my God. Much to John's chagrin, we did not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those of you who are listening in on the MCU feed understand that reference. Uh, okay, so the episode IMDb summary um, with Larrick closing in, Elizabeth rushes to exfiltrate Jared while Philip readies Fred for a crucial mission. Arcadi finally plays his hand, forcing Stan to make an impossible choice. Let's do a close read of that sentence. If we like <laughs> look at some specific words, we got closing in, we've got rushing, we've got exfiltrate, crucial, finally, forcing, and impossible, and that's in like 20 words. Would you say there's escalation-y things that are happening in this particular oh, episode of the Americans? Absolutely. It feels like the language is telling us that things are really heating up. They are. And so I think that what Danielle and I would like to talk about to open up the kind of general discussion is the connection between spying and interpersonal connections on the yeah. Americans as the spy stakes, missions, et cetera, escalate in this episode, I think that throws into relief the way that spying somewhat like one might say dialectically or one might say, you know, uh, strangely <laughs> can function both as an obstacle or a block to some sort of genuine connection between human beings, yeah. but like arguably in other ways helps create or foster or sustain or enable some kinds of connections. And so I think maybe we can explore that both for what that, you know, obviously what that means for the characters and the plot points of this episode, but also then what the show's doing and thinking about the classic personalist political, the spy craft is the personal dimensions of the show. Yeah, you might say that we've we've come to our first both and of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> but not last. But not last. <laughs> never, never last. <laughs> never true. <laughs> like that's what we need tattooed on ourselves. <laughs> Maybe like the owl can be like hooting out both and. <laughs> I'll get both, you get and. <laughs> Oh, 
that's staying. <laughs> might have been my best idea ever. I'm not sure. <laughs> I have two friends that have uh, badger tattoos. They both have badger tattoos, and their their badger tattoos are positioned on their bodies as such. They're very close friends. With that, if they're next to each other, they can sort of be holding hands. Like, it's very cute. Um, I envision our owls as having some kind of version of that. Perfect. I can't wait. Okay. So I think that there are like two different tracks to follow underneath the, the sort of like broader, like idea of spying escalation and spying connection, right? That, that broader headline. So I think there's the track where we follow Philip and Elizabeth the stuff with Paige and Jared and Larrick is the agent of escalation there. And then I think there's like a parallel but distinct um, track, which is like the Nina, Stan, Arcadi, Oleg stuff. Where do you want to start? Let's start with the Larrick track. The Larrick track, if he's like dropping the, his new <laughs> single, what would Larrick's soundtrack be? Question to ponder for another day. One way to view the Philip Elizabeth relationship mm-hmm. is a constant kind of rise and fall of escalation and de-escalation yeah. of the spy craft stakes, or maybe it's like a perpetual escalation, even in the structure of this episode and the structure of their missions in this episode, they lament the kind of escalation on top of escalation that they experience. But there's a way in which their relationship is kind of rising and falling on its own terms and rising and falling on the terms of what the missions they have to deal with are, what the kids are doing, what Paige is doing. Cause like Henry is, you know, periphery. Just watching Star Trek. Yeah. And I think if we're interested in this relationship between spying and interpersonal connection, we also have to deal with the fact that the only reason these two people were initially and are continuing to be together, although perhaps that is changing, is because they were thrown together. And they comment on that when they talk about what's going to happen to Jared. Your impulse there is right, that it's like there we can follow their relationship through like the cyclical escalation and de-escalation of their spy lifestyle, right? I think the thing that is like so interesting to me about Philip and Elizabeth's relationship, both in this episode, but, but more generally is that, and this is something I was thinking about in, in sort of the, the spying and, and connection, uh, like quandary that you pose is that I think we expect spying to block relationships, right? And when we meet Philip and Elizabeth, the the fact that they are spies has blocked any intimacy that that they experience and since we've known them in the show like that's where they're trying they're like trying and often struggling with the development of intimacy and i was struck in this episode about how there's something about elizabeth's fear about what will happen to the kids which to the conversation that you're referencing right now that is like incredibly intimate and it's a way that their the the like lifestyle of them as spies both generates obstacles to intimacy but also sort of pushes them together in a in a way that I think like they perhaps hadn't let themselves be pushed together before. Right. It's a can spycraft take them from Agape to Eros, right? <laughs> 
Oh my god. After my own fucking heart. (laughs) (laughs) I think we see this particular dynamic illustrated by the way that Elizabeth comes very quickly to relate to Jared, especially as she learns that Jared knew about what Leanne and Emmett did. Like the fact that she can then have, even if in the context of exfiltrating Jared, even if in the context of helping Jared through some crucial bits of knowledge while withholding other pieces of information, like the reveals that she gives to him enables her to like be more open or be more intimate or be more kind of directly herself with Jared. Not only is that connection kind of more direct with Jared than it generally is with Paige throughout the first two seasons as a whole, but that is especially highlighted in this episode where she leaves the family in the you know almost middle of the night or like right before everybody's going to bed to go on a work emergency back to the travel agency to help their like clients in Phoenix or whatever. Paige calls her out on it and like makes this really morbid joke of, you know, what did all of your clients die in a plane crash or whatever it is that Paige said? (laughs) I just love how suspicious Paige is. We'll talk about it more later. Yeah. Um, But it's the, it's the fact that she leaves Paige, including classically parental relationships with Paige to like help her pack for this overnight trip to go to the protest with the church. Yeah. Right. And Paige is very clearly upset by this. So as to go execute the Jared mission, try to initiate the process of exfiltrating Jared, which leads her to be more open with and arguably do more honest parenting of Jared than she's ever able to do with Paige. I think that's absolutely right. And I wonder if part of it is that Jared knows she's a spy. Yeah, of course. Or knows she's involved in spycraft and like, a fundamental element of her relationship with Paige at this moment is that Paige cannot know she's a spy. So I think your your point is like so spot on because the Elizabeth Jared relationship in this episode illustrates exactly the limitations of, of that spycraft sort of impose on her relationship to, to Paige. Right. And we've talked a lot this season about how In different ways, Paige and Henry are both enacting unconsciously some of the things they have picked up from their parents. And there's a little bit of like reverse of that occurring for Elizabeth in this episode in the way that she and Philip have this conversation about, well, what would happen with, you know, if this was happening to Jared happened to Paige and to Henry and Elizabeth is like, they'd be dead in an alley in an hour. Right. And so, you know, you make the point that it's because Jared knows she's a spy and like Elizabeth is expressing concern, obviously, about like what happens in a crisis to Henry and to Paige. But it's also like I think she might not be able to have this self-knowledge, but it's also her lamenting that she doesn't have that openness, like whether or not she would ever actively say, I know that I have a weaker relationship with Paige because there's this severe lack of honesty, this like fundamental foundational lack of honesty. And that's part of my pushing against Paige or criticism of Paige or whatever. Like we see that I think likely unconscious emotional dynamic playing out in the way she relates to Jared here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, and 
And yet there are parallels, right? Like yes. the the way that Elizabeth attempts to care for Paige, right, is by protecting her from the like invasive ideology of America, of the church, like of all of yeah. these things. But like Paige sees these as like, you know, her mother just trying to like harp on her, right? Or punish her. Whereas like that's Elizabeth's, I think, genuine attempt yes. to protect Paige. Yeah, and mutated by the fucked up dynamics of their relationship. Totally. Yeah. And so, and Elizabeth also like goes through great lengths to protect Jared and Elizabeth and Philip both like take risks, right? Like the episode starts out with the fact that um, Philip's going to signal the center from the house and which is like incredibly risky behavior, which they address in the show. And like, we know at least for the most part that like Larrick's not watching them but they don't know that, right? Like they're. We also to- think maybe Larrick is still in Nicaragua. I can't. I feel very proud <laughs> about like how slow moving they are on on all of this. Um, and and there's Paige. She's just present and kind of intruding herself on this increased desperation or escalation because where is Paige pretty late at night? Philip is thinks everybody's asleep. He's they show us him tiptoeing down to the basement and like he's literally on his tiptoes. There's a shot of his feet as he walks to go down the stairs. He comes up out of the basement from finishing the transmission. Paige is at the kitchen table with the lights on. uh, And like, he has to make an excuse or he and Elizabeth are talking in thinly veiled code on the phone and Paige literally like picks up the other line and then considers trying to trick them into thinking she actually hangs up. Yeah. And so she's placing herself slash being put by the creators or creatives here to interrupt this or be a uh, intrusion into the smooth functioning of the most rickety like spy machine. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say the smooth functioning of like the taped together yeah. spy situation that we have going on here. What did you make of Paige's um, brief discussion with pastor Tim on the bus? Yeah. So there's a uh, several layers to this because pastor Tim, of course, a couple of episodes ago was accosted by Philip and maybe beat up or murdered in the fucking rectory. I don't know yeah. if that applies in a Protestant, in a Protestant church. Um, I call it a rectory being a extremely lapsed Catholic. Um, and pastor know, Tim do. is more generous to Philip and Elizabeth than pages. Right. Yeah. Tim is trying to say like, oh, your parents knew this was important for you. Then he asks Paige and here's where he kind of demonstrates his after effects of Philip's visit of, is your dad hard on you? And then this gets flipped by Paige into, no, actually it's more my mom than my dad who's hard on me. (laughs) And then she says, I love them, but I don't even know who they are. Sometimes I think he's having an affair. Sometimes I think she's having an affair and I don't, you know, believe a word that they say. So Paige has kind of in that moment with Pastor Tim, like fully expressing all the different pieces she has picked up of her skepticism somewhere on the skepticism to rejection spectrum of her parents. Yeah. And I I think the, like 
both that Pastor Tim's question like reminds us of the like his accosting by Philip and also I think produces a surprising answer from Paige for him. Like I think that I don't know, part of me is like maybe Pastor Tim needs to go in the dossier. <laughs> Well, I, I hope he does. Um, but, you know, and he's got to be thinking in that moment, well, if that's what Philip did to me, then, like, what the fuck is Elizabeth capable of, you know? Honestly, that's exactly where my brain went, which is, like, what would it, what would it have been like if it was Elizabeth that confronted Pastor Tim? Because Philip is the one, like, lamenting the, like, wrongful death of the truck driver and feeling bad about, like, you know, having to slit someone's throat when he wasn't, he wasn't anticipating it. Yeah. But Elizabeth is like pulling out guns and shooting people with no hesitation. And we know that ideologically she's the one that's closer. So like all of that, I, yeah, I think that question is important. (laughs) (laughs) That may or may not be setting up some dossier situations. I think it's also worth briefly perhaps noting how Fred fits into all of this because he is somebody who experiences no personal connections in his life with the exception of the personal connection that seemingly was a mixture of genuineness in him being run by Emmett. And Philip is perceptive in this moment to say that Fred has no friends. He has no girlfriend. He has no wife. He's kind of a, he's a loner, smart, a little bit grandiose. Like these are all the ways that Philip describes him, which highlights the emotional resonance of Fred's spycraft for, to himself, for us to be able to see on a deeper level than even we've gotten yeah. already. And then it also sets up the two particular ways that Philip tries to deepen the relationship with Fred in the scene and like the abandoned, you know, like park, national park or state park or whatever, like cabin or wherever it is they meet. I've got something on that for Gloss as well, where he brings Elizabeth in disguise, obviously, and even says, not supposed to do this, but... Here's my, you know, I forget if he says wife or not, but or partner or whatever he says. Yeah. Um, and he keeps pumping up the importance of this mission and the possible importance of Fred if he completes the mission of wearing the special shoes to pick up the paint um, yeah. on his shoes so that they can do the radar absorbent stuff. I think it's worth noting here that, like, it's Elizabeth's idea to come along, right? Like, Elizabeth's the one that picks up on mm-hmm. the the fact that, like, yes, Fred's a loner, but, like, the connection that he felt to Emmett was, like, a connection to something bigger, like, family, you know, like, they're, I think, like, that's important. And then also just that, like... Yes, it's about that the mission is important, that he's doing good work. Like, it's about pumping him up. It seems like it's a little bit more about making Fred feel not only like he's doing good work, but that he specifically is needed and he specifically is being rewarded. Like, and it's not like a a certificate reward. It's Mm -hmm. like, you're good enough that I'm willing to break the rules for you. Yes. Right. That's the, that, 
who it's gets like to get into life. the inner circle or become an extended family member to like exactly. maybe take a personal connection metaphor to its like logical conclusion. Exactly. Exactly. It it's it goes back to something that like we remarked on when Emmett and Leanne were alive and in the show about how they were willing to use their kids, but at least at present, like Philip and Elizabeth were not. And like this is another example of that, right? That like Emmett and Leanne, or at least Emmett is willing to like tell Fred about his child. And Philip and Philip is willing to like bring Elizabeth along, and that is enough of a transgression. But they like still have not extended like the circle to even let people know that their kids, like Jared is ostensibly getting gifts from this person mm-hmm. that knows his dad is a spy, but doesn't know that he is a spy, like that, that. He's he doesn't know that his son is his son. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, I think that there is something interesting there. And again, like, thinking more about the way in which spycraft or, like, being a spy can both function to deepen connection or amplify connection while simultaneously functioning to functioning as an obstacle to connection. Like, in the same action vis-a-vis two different people, like, those both of those like both of those vectors can be at work. Yeah, there's even uh, craft psychology or Jody Dean or like Zizek Lacan like direction to go in here too about in what ways does one's political identification serve kind of psychic functions for the self and enable the self to feel part of a larger group, to feel some yeah. relationality in their lives, to feel connection to yeah a big other to like, there's lots of different or to a party. Like there's lots of different uh, ways to think about it, but Fred kind of encapsulates that. What purpose does somebody find from the quote unquote political work that they do? You know, I, I love a Jody Jane reference. Um, so I'm obviously happy for this, but yeah, I think like Fred is a really good example of that. I would put Elizabeth also sort of yes. as a, yeah, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Whereas I think Philip's connection to, to, to like, to his political identity, right, is like a little bit more tenuous. And conflicted as we've talked yeah. about throughout the first For sure. seasons. For sure. Do you have anything else that you want to talk about with regard to like this <laughs> uh, track of escalation? No, let's, let's jump to the other track and think about. Nina and Stan and Arcade and Olya, where do you want to begin there? I think let's start with Nina. I mean, like, this is such a minor point, but I was the the bruising on her face was was tough for me. Like the mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. her physical presence in this episode, and like even when she comes on screen, I knew that it was a, a something that was like created for the moment, right? Because like we've gotten some of this backstory. But there's something about, and she says this, like, they had to make it look real. Yeah. Right? And that, I think, goes back to our, like, our sort of question about, like, escalation and spycraft and, like, how are those things related? Right. And I think that there's a structural thing that's happening there to highlight what's happening to Nina and that she gets less green time here than the past several episodes I would venture saying. And she gets very little dialogue 
with the exception of the first scene with Stan before it all goes to shit. And like, they spring this on trap on Stan after that, she gets very little dialogue and is acted upon rather than acting, which I think ties into the conversation we had about her and limited agency in the last episode. And that this then gets enacted in the storytelling structure of this episode. I hadn't really thought about like the point of her screen time. She's a less active presence in this episode though, right? Yeah, but I think you're absolutely right. And I think like, again, sort of extending our discussion from last time about limited agency to like, to think about where that intersects with like escalation and, and intimacy. Nina is a crucial figure in this in this entire mission right like the mission like lives and dies on whether nina is able to like accomplish the goals that are set out for her and they're never the goals that she has set out for herself and i think that there is like there's something like deeply sad about that but like also there's something like deeply realistic about it at the same time Right. Both as a woman and as a like a foreign national inside uh, another state, but also as someone who has legitimately betrayed like her country and is now trying to make amends. Right. Like all of those things factor in here. And great point. Have we ever seen her on screen with another woman? I'm sure other people in that like in the office pool before she gets her own office at the residentura. But other than that, like the answer might just be no. What a great question. I think the answer is no. I think the answer is no. Which, which like serves the same point. Wow. The point you make about Nina's storyline asking what it would take for her to provide some sort of like restoration or recompense for the betrayal of her country I think so hits home as Stan in this moment of escalation faces this, you know, as the IMDb summary called that the impossible choice of what to do here and him taking several steps down the road of betraying his own country. He buys the car. He like goes to the facility and is like, I would like to see echo. And then conversely as Arkady and Oleg are on kind of different positions when it comes to has Nina fully kind of given back to the Soviet union, right. To the motherland, what she took from it or the way that she betrayed it because Arkady is colder in this episode. And we talked about this a little bit last week as well than he has been previously to Nina. And so there's a question of like, has he just kind of understanding his hands to be tied and is just kind of providing them the, self-justification to his hands being tied or just playing that out emotionally. Whereas Oleg is obviously, and we'll get to the scene between Oleg and Nina here in a minute is like very shook up by what's happening to Nina. The dichotomy or the, the distinction that you're, you're drawing between Arkady and Oleg, right? Like I think maps on to their like positions in the hierarchy here. Yes. Right. Like, there's, there is something of a necessity, like Arkady's position as sort of like the boss around here, like requires that he take a different, perhaps longer, perhaps like less uh, generous view of all of this. And Arkady has been like quite generous because honestly, I thought that Nina was dead like 
a season ago. Right? And, I mean, there's a different version of the show, a less good version of the show that has Nina confess. Arkady like mulls it over for an episode and the next episode she gets sent back to Moscow. Yeah. In the same way that, like, we saw that happen, right? We know that that's a possibility. Maybe let's talk a little bit about, um, like, the Oleg and Nina scene and just the way that he is impacted by this. I'm just, I was just there. Like, I've seen this however many times. I was just crying last night watching this scene <laughs> between the two of them because Oleg is... On the one hand, expressing this extreme optim- extreme and fake optimism about the mission, like it looks like you're on the path to success, and yeah. he is on the verge of crying. He can't actually express anything that he's feeling because they're being listened to as he like puts his finger to his lips and then points to the room because they're being listened to while Nina's like in this, you know, uh, suspended position here. Gives her the money, right? So that if she has the chance to run, she has money to do it. And is also expressing, like, I think his deep and abiding love of her and for her. I think that you're the, like, non-hardened side of my heart wants to agree with you. But there's, like, just always a little bit of suspicion in me. That's, is there a, is there a version of this that where, like, Oleg is just going to, like, swoop in and fuck everybody and, like... It like I don't know, like is there a version of this where we learn that the love is not authentic or like not real? I like Oleg hasn't shown any any like inkling towards that, yeah. but I couldn't it's a show about spies. <laughs> it's a show about spies and it's also a show that Oleg is willing to break the rules. It's a show where Oleg can come up with seemingly a few thousand dollars in like USD cash to like stuff in an envelope to give to Nina at a moment's notice. We, you know, even had things like as silly as the going out dancing as the hockey ticket scalping, like all yeah. of these things throughout the season to also give us plenty with which to question Oyeg as fuckboy. Yes. Also just like on that one, on that note, what an insane amount of cash. Like, was that all ones? Like, what an no, insane there, amount we of saw cash. only hundreds. I know, I know. <laughs> like, the only way that that is a le- legitimate thing that I could produce from my bank account is if I gave somebody a, an envelope full of ones. Well, Oleg's daddy is, like, deputy minister of the railways or whatever. This is, like one of those things where it's like only in the eighties was it possible to withdraw that much money and for no one to like blink an eye. Cause they weren't keeping track of it. Yeah. Oh yeah. is like the Pete Buddha judge of the Soviet union. Dude today, if somebody withdrew, <laughs> how much money do you think is in that envelope? At least 5k. Okay. If somebody withdrew 5k from a bank account today, that was working for an embassy, they'd be like, okay, like, what drug dealer do you have connections to? Or, like, yeah. there would be, uh, like, it would be, a like, a billion percent. A billion percent, yes. <laughs> they yes, would yes. track the money to a bank account in, like, the Cayman Islands or something. Like, Oleg's like, oh, I just walked up the street, the Russia bank, <laughs> just pulled it on out of the ATM. What? Yeah. <laughs> Spare bank. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fine, but, like, I'm going to stick with my Oleg and Nina's, like, faux conversation here that the real part of it has to be communicated via their body language, right? Via Matt Mahendru and Kostaronin and Oleg almost crying and Nina a little bit crying and 
Yeah. It was just like such an emotionally affecting moment. And this is one of the relationships that has gone through the most dramatic emotional transformation vis-a-vis the spy work, right? Because they started out and Oleg was just is introduced as pure fuckboy, and Nina reads him correctly as just a fuckboy right. for several episodes. And then here we are over the course of the season, and that has turned into what I am reading as like a very serious and genuine emotional tie between the two of them. I think that that's right. And I want to not necessarily walk back, but take a different track than I took before. I think that their connection on screen reads as genuine. I think like, like all of these different pieces are led to suggest that it's genuine, but like, while on the one hand, I'm like, is Oleg going to like pull the rug out? Cause I'm always suspicious of things. On the other hand, I'm like, well, we also like, it's difficult for me anyway, to discern like where Nina's real feelings end yeah. and for like mm-hmm. her fabricated feelings for first uh, begin vis-a-vis Stan. So I think there's a way that like that conundrum could also apply to Oleg. Right. So I've, I'm like, I guess this goes back to a question we've been asking for the entire two seasons that I've been watching this, which is like, what is real? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unclear. Unclear. What's clear is that Stan is seriously contemplating this choice that this deal that is offered to him, right? Like complete this is Arcadi tells him the first time Arcadi and Stan have met, Arcadi is like, you get this computer program for us. We let Nina go. We let both of you go. You go to, you know, do whatever you're going to do. Yeah. What would you have predicted Stan's reaction to be? And maybe to get a kind of advanced dossier, what do you think he will do in the next episode, given that he started to take some steps towards trying to get Nina out? I mean, I think that I have more faith in Stan's love for Nina than I do in Nina's love for either Stan or Oleg, right? Mm. Because I think part of why I can say that is because the stuff with Sandy really does seem to be, like, impacting him. And so it seems like Stan is just one of these dudes that, like, does not know how to function without without a wife or a partner. Yeah. And so I think, like, he has slotted Nina into that space and, like, you know, he says to her, I'll come visit you. I'll figure it out. Like, it won't be every weekend. We've seen this a couple of different episodes now. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I'll come see you. Da, 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 da. Like, he can't, he can't function without that kind of, like, feminine partner next to him. Right. And so I, I fully think that he's, like, about to give up state secrets for this. Yeah, for this. because the way that they've set Stan up is that... When he is pushed to this extent, and they have they started laying the groundwork for this back last season, where when Chris goes missing, is ultimately killed, he kills Vlad. That Stan, when pushed, could I think justifiably the show has the choice at this precise moment to have him further indulge the fantasy and like double down on the fantasy of him and Nina, like Bonnie and Gliding on the run together. Um, what a great gerund you have created there. <laughs> great. Um, as they, as they go on the run and this kind of future life with the like 
woman partner that, as you correctly point out, he seems to need to feel some sort of emotional completeness in his life. So his, who, as he is pushed in this moment of escalation, that is a very real possibility, even at the cost of betraying state secrets or whatever. And so too is the possibility that he, like, being pushed could snap him out of his fantasy of what could be with he and Nina. And I appreciate that like at this precise moment, yeah. one episode before the end of season two, the show has made it such that both paths could be true to Stan's character as we have come to know him over almost two seasons. Yeah. I think that that's something that I appreciate about Stan is like Stan while like, maybe lackluster on a number of measures is like a complex character, right? Like he's got some layers. We don't love all the layers, but, and I think the, the, that sort of not, maybe not duality, but like those two like different pieces of Stan that we're seeing through this, like, I, I think like the show has earned, at least from me, the, the like tension that Stan's person, Stan's character, like presents constantly. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so then if we try to connect all of these threads of connection and disconnection together, if you will, that I will, work, but we'll go with it. <laughs> I'll take is, it. Again, I'm thinking back to Lyric being the instigator here, or the agent of escalation and along that kind of first track that we discussed. And if we ask ourselves what would be the agent of instigation or, es- or escalation in the second track, it's kind of the logic of the Cold War itself, right? Where the logic of the Cold War would never let Nina kind of be suspended in this, I'm recruiting Stan, but I'm not pushing him to some sort of final conclusion forever, it pushes the center to be like, hey, Arcadi, like you got to make Nina do this or we're you know, taking her back, we're putting her on a trial and executing yeah. her. So it's like the logic of the Cold War itself, not to mention the like, all of this is tied to stealth and the different aspects of stealth, so on and so forth, yeah. is driving this part. And so if we think about those two kind of agents or instigators together, like I think there's an argument to be made that on the US side, at least, there's no one who kind of better embodies the logic of the Cold War than Larrick himself, right? He has very few emotional connections. The only ones he has are to like to his bros in the military. Yeah. He is involved in dirty wars and like counter-revolutionary right-wing vigilante violence in Central America. He yeah. is not allowed to be gay. Right. So like, there's a certain notion of masculinity yeah. he's forced to uphold. So yeah. as the logic of the Cold War acts on that second track, a figure who embodies key elements of that kind of nationalistic, militaristic, he doesn't necessarily fit the masculine version of it fully um, kind of violence is instigating all of the chaos and the escalation on the other, bringing these connections, disconnections to a head. Yeah, I mean, I, I I really like that analysis. And I think we've talked a little bit before about Larrick being sort of like a dark Stan, but there's a way yes. in which Larrick is basically like the Stan if he like had been lost to being an embedded like official exactly. in the like white nationalist land. Yeah. Right? Like all of the like the toxic, I would like... 
the toxic masculinity, though, like he's sort of negotiating that in a different way, right? The toxic nativism, right? Yeah. Like there's there's like a lot of different pieces that like I think we can see as not he's not only embodying a sort of like logic of escalation in the Cold War, but also embodying a, a position that we have kind of been introduced to already through Stan and Stan's own struggles with like coming out of that, like being embedded. Right. Lyric is Stan who is hyper competent in a like terrifying way. Yeah. In part because unlike Stan, he seems to have severed personal connections in the conventional sense and in the head sense, at least. Larrick is Stan if he had been lost to the the community that he was embedded in. But, like, more than that, literally in my notes I have Larrick is a genius because, like, there is something just, like, so sharp about all putting all those pieces together. Yeah. And, of course, the show, like, does that for us, but, like, that's important to me. Larrick is the Stan who was chosen for the mission he went on, right? Like, Larrick gives us all those characteristics. And so we understand why Stan got chosen. Sorry to step on you a couple of times, Larrick. That's an excellent point, which I think raises the question then, is Larrick actually more like Elizabeth or more like Elizabeth and Philip, like, as a collective? Then he is like Stan, but on the other side of the Cold War and without the compelled, sad family structure on top. John, it's really going to shock you, but I think it's a both and. (laughs) He's both. Like, right? We talk about this all the time. Like, oh, Stan's bad at his job. Philip and Elizabeth are good at their job. And like, again, coming back to this, like, question of like intimacy and connection and escalation, right? Like the escalation is for Stan where, where intimacy, intimacy with Sandy fully falls away. Intimacy intimacy with Nina becomes incredibly complicated and entangled in this escalation. And like, and for Philip and Elizabeth, like we sort of see them rise and fall with regard to intimacy and escalation. And so like, I think that if we are like thinking about Larrick in relation to Stan, we're always already thinking about him in relation to Philip and Elizabeth also, because that's the dyad that like the show has set up for us overall and in this episode. And that they love across the street from one another. (laughs) Of course. course. All right. Uh, Should we head into the segments? Let's go to segments. All right. I'm really intrigued by what's going to be in Daniel Dossier. I feel like a penultimate episode, to use the phrase that we as TV podcasters are contractually fucking obligated to use. <laughs> Although we failed because now one also has to say anti-penultimate episode. And I don't think we did that last week. So failure on our part. So they should revoke our podcast license. But I'm really excited for a Daniel Dossier in an episode 12 of a 13 episode season. So what do we have this week? Okay, so my first entry, this is a treat for you because oh, I was watching oh, wow. the <laughs> Oh wow, it's right. No, I was watching the show and because we have been talking about the show for now 17 million weeks, um I'm aware of camera angles. And yes. so yes. the I thought the like shot of Jared from the from the window in yeah, the beginning above, of, yeah. Yeah, and I was like 
oh god, like this is bad. He's being watched. Like I know what this camera angle is supposed to tell me. And then we get the Laric reveal, and I was like, oh my god, wow, so good. So I just wanted to shout that out. Um, you love to see it. You love to see it, and I love to see it now because you have made me love. <laughs> L- to see literally it. love to see it. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> love to literally see it. I guess is the is the way to put it. Oh my god! So that's the the first thing Wonderful. I would say. The other one we haven't talked about Martha. We'll talk about her a little bit in gloss, but I don't know. There's something I just first of all like. I want to double down on my prediction. Martha, she's gonna die soon. I don't know if it's gonna be next episode, but like talk about escalation and intimacy and all of that. Like, I don't know. I have a theory, like the bigger, the orgasm, the closer to death. Like on TV. So Petit more and all, you know? Oh, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. I see you've been watching Emily in Paris also. Um, <laughs> that's, that's coming up next after, you know, next time we do it, add a second, second show to always oh do the not quite God. great podcasts. So those are my two entries in the dossier. Um, I, of course, like there's the persistent page is suspicious entry. And like, she's got some great suspicion and some great lines about suspicion here. Some quite morbid as we've talked about. Um, but yeah, those are my, those are my dossier entries. All right. I have maybe a couple questions for you. Okay. For the dossier. First question has to do with Elizabeth and Elizabeth vis-a-vis Jared. Okay. Even after she has dropped Jared off and Jared has gotten on the train and Elizabeth is back home with Philip. Something about Jared is still really, really bugging her. Yeah. Do you think that there are more revelations to come or more secrets to come about Jared? Or do you think that Elizabeth is being more just like overly paranoid because of the escalation that we've talked about? And I'm not allowing a both and answer. (laughs) I think that there are more revelations to come. My read of that is like, she doesn't quite know like the timeline of Jared finding out. Right. So like she, she doesn't know. I like, I, as the viewer don't know, like, was it Kate who told Jared, right? Did Jared know? And that's why Kate met with him. Like, did something happen? Did like, we only see part of the, part or one of the interactions with Stan, but there have been other interactions with other agents or whatever. And maybe like there's another, there's like maybe also other KGB agents, right? My read of it is that Elizabeth doesn't have the full range of information. And part of that is because like, she can't have the full range of information. That's like what this all functions on is like partial information. And I think there's something about that lack of, control that Elizabeth has that is making her deeply uneasy. So I think that there will be more reveals, but I don't know exactly what they'll be. All right. Fair enough. That makes me think of the way that we as audience members came to know that Jared knew that his parents were spies, which is not revealed to us by Jared to Elizabeth or Philip or Kate, which is not revealed by Jared at all in any way. It's revealed doubly indirectly, right? It's revealed by Philip to Elizabeth, mm-hmm. but they're talking in code, right? So like the reveal that Jared knew his parents were KGB spies to the audience comes filtered through so many layers of indirection yeah. or misdirection that yeah. I think that that's consistent with your reading. Here. We're going to get a page reveal. I think page 
finds out. I think she like walks in on her parents being spies or something like having the radio or like, I think Paige finds something in the laundry room. Okay. I think, especially because she was, like you said, sitting at the table when Philip just like rolled up from the basement at 11 PM. Um, I think again, either a Larrick or a Jared death. I think that I feel like the Stan getting stuff for the Russians has to go awry somehow. And in a way that maybe cliffhanger has us ask questions about Stan's career, but like ultimately wraps up so that it doesn't. These are great predictions. I'm impressed by your bravery and boldness in making these wild predictions. Thanks. I mean, they're mostly like everyone's going to (laughs) die. Not the worst approach to take. Let's go to Gloss. Let's go to Gloss. Uh, Let's start with Martha. Yeah. Martha reveals to Clark that she knows he, quote unquote, wears a toupee. My notes say... Clark's toupee, oh fuck moment. <laughs> why and why an oh fuck moment? Well, you see it on Clark's face as like, mm-hmm. oh fuck. Like if she knows that, like what else does she know? But luckily, Martha's kind of an idiot, so she doesn't seem to know anything else. I would like to push back on the Martha's an idiot line. Martha's an idiot about Clark, okay, but fair, Martha's fair, fair. like Martha's not an idiot writ large. She steals those files. Like, she's been doing phenomenal work. And she's, like, quite aware of the dynamics in her in the workplace. Like, there's a lot of things that Martha is really smart about. But when it comes to Clark, Martha is an idiot. Because, John, this man won't sleep over more than, like, one night a week. Yeah. You can't tell anybody you're married to Correct. him. You can't call like, him directly. You can't call him and, and like, he only has these two relatives and, like, he didn't want to tell your parents that you were, like, getting married. And he wears a, you think is a, a toupee, but it's obviously a wig. Like, the fact that Martha hasn't put those different pieces together to be, like, am I actually married to this person? Is this person a spy? Or, like, is this person stealing someone's identity? Like, right? Like, she doesn't ask any questions about this. She's right? just like, oh, you've got okay. What? She's she's like Stan in this way, right? Like Stan yeah. is smart and can think critically, but not when yeah. it comes to Nina. And yeah. Martha, to your point, like has a bunch of areas, including a bunch of areas of her work where she is perceptive and insightful. And then Clark is the exact opposite of that. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. Um, the like Martha Stan parallel. Just like, come on, man. She does, though, speaking of escalations, like, without those documents, it's like, oh here, God. here you go, Clark. I brought you a present. It's, like, at least six or seven files. It looked like there were more, like, in the briefcase or whatever, in the bag, that's just full of top-secret material. And Clark is not only, like, oh, fuck, you realize this is a wig slash toupee, but, oh, fuck, what are you, like, A, you got this, and B, what risk did you have to run to get this, and is this going to come back and fuck me? And, like, the this is where Martha is kind of a genius, where it's like, there is no risk. She's like, <laughs> I, she's like they, I keep telling them that this is not protocol, and they don't care. And, like, Fuck them. And I, there's something about, like, listen, Martha, an idiot about Clark, but, like, 
kind of brilliant and like a little bit like fuck the man on this angle. And I'm right. very here for yeah, it. She literally steals classified documents from FBI headquarters and as takes them lesson. home as a lesson to as get lesson. <laughs> to her uh, fake husband who works in some FBI who over who put a bug in her boss's federal <laughs> office that like top secret things happen in. Don't worry. He's just like part of the FBI oversight committee. You know, if there's one thing we know about American law enforcement, they subject themselves to extensive oversight that really digs into what the fuck they're up to. Again, Martha, you're right. Like Stan, not asking too many questions <laughs> that will make me fall out of love with this man. Yeah. But willing to like take a lot of risks that she doesn't even know are risks. Right. And it also, including the risk of Clark's long emotional con of Martha has worked in some ways at this point, in this moment, beyond his wildest dreams. He's like, all right, we have had an achievement by getting her to put the bug in Gad's office. Oh, now without me even asking, she brings home folder upon folder of super classified documents. It's just honestly so wild. And I'm here for it. I'm so here wild. for the chaos of it. I'm also here for the return of Clark, the sex God. <laughs> yes. Which yeah. happens in this episode. We haven't seen Clark, the sex God in a while. So a welcome. Last time was pretty question traumatic. mark return. Yeah, I would sure say so. Um, but he loses sex god points when he's like, here, let me take the condom off, hand it to you, Martha, you throw it in the trash, then give me a tissue, and I'm going to hand back the tissue to you to also throw in the trash. Losing points on the sex god scale, our friend Clark. But this is, this is the true dichotomy of Clark. Martha. He is a sex god, and he's also like the biggest fucking dork possible. But also, like, the hand the condom hand the tissue is like also like a dirtbag move. If that happened in my life, I would be like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Absolutely fucking not. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. like have a little fucking respect. Like this is the thing. Like that is a mark that Clark it's has a power no respect move. for Mark. Yes, exactly. it's a power move. And like And not in like a kinky way. In like a No. Yeah. But to go back to our conversation from before about, like, it's like Martha is blind to all things Yeah, mm -hmm. I will also say that this is, the I think, the first time we've seen Clark take off a condom. Yeah, I like so. with like, And it's definitely not the first time we've, se we've seen him sleep with Martha. And so, like, to me, uh, I clocked that. And then it's like, then they have that conversation about kids. Yeah. I love the two of us, but what about three or four of us? And... Yikes. And and Clark's like, no, I thought I told you, like, no kids, like, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, of course you didn't tell her because you don't say anything to her. And, like, of course she's like, okay, whatever. I mean, I think, like, that's where I – that's really where I'm like, yeah, this is the kind of escalation that's get that gets people killed. Exactly. And it's in combination with the toupee, right, that, like – Again, it's the what does Martha know, what does Martha not know, or refuse to kind of internalize or, like, be, like, ignorant in the philosophical sense of ignorant about, like, willfully so. Um, yeah. With regards to Clark. Yeah. Absolutely oh. wild. I've, I think we have one more note on this conversation about kids coming up in 
borrow nostalgia. So we can come back to it later. I have, a, I have a crucial question, maybe the most important question okay. um, of the entire episode for you, which in good podcasting fashion comes an hour into the pod, the best question. So okay. we have this code phrase from, uh, from Elizabeth to Jared about like health, growth, and community. What would be our code phrase to one another if like, I don't know, we need to recruit producer Amy or John Keller needs to be like, don't worry, it's safe. The other one of the two of us is authorized to this contact. This is a great question. Hmm. Okay. Our code, our phrase, our like health, growth, and community would be something like affect, emotion, and communism or something like that. Like, <laughs> like, like affect, emotion. And it, 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 it couldn't be affect, emotion, and solidarity because that's just like a phrase that we both use too much. <laughs> sure. It would be like affect, emotion, and then like a third word third that term. like was the yeah. signal mm-hmm. that something that like, like, okay, we're on board. Okay. I like that. I like that. We can workshop that. Uh, maybe we can ask our guests that. Maybe that's like a question oh. for our guest. What's the code word? Code Especially phrase. next week. Especially next week, for sure. Yeah. A follow-up question. Elizabeth and Philip have this, you know, indirect convo, which we, of course, understand fully. And like, it's a very, very well-scripted dialogue between the two yeah. of them to work on the multiple levels that it has to work um, about, Jared, about Kate, about George, about Larrick, like all of this happens over this phone conversation. How would we have that conversation? Like, are we talking about like teaching? Like, go for it. it. It's just your typical either or situation. (laughs) (laughs) That's when when we're signaling it's a both and it's like the, the the inversion of it. That's like, it's like, because I take the like, we have to talk sensitive spy stuff yeah. as like something's wrong, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. something's wrong and we need to shift into our sensitive language. Yeah. You and I would never say either or in like real parlance. Right. So we, it would need to be something that was like very, cl- something that we could say that's like in the realm of stuff we talk about, but it would have to be something that both of us would know. This is like absolutely not the thing we're talking about. I think that's a great idea. Another idea I had is that we are like communicating about some of the podcasts that we both listen to and like are using that as a way into expressing what we need to say in secretive languages. So you hear the most recent episode of X and we use like the either or phrase perhaps to signal that we're talking about this podcast that we watch, but by the use of the either or we've shifted into it's really about the spy stuff. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. No one will ever figure us out. I think that we honestly probably could have, like, without talking about what the code was, I could have said, like, it's a real either-or situation, and you could have started talking about secret podcast stuff in the language of the watch. Yeah. And we both would have picked up on what was going on. Yeah. Great. (laughs) I love it. I can't wait. I can't wait till we try to make another Patreon exclusive. (laughs) Oh yeah. Or if I guess if you just want to give us money, we would do it. I don't know. Yeah, I would do it. <laughs> All right. Um, a few smaller things happening in class this week. I fucking love Arcadi's three piece suit here in this episode that he's wearing. He's like really feeling himself in this. It's a little too shiny for my liking, but like light gray suit situation 
He looks great in it. It looks great. He's very extremely in control, barking out his message in this suit also. So this is the suit when Stan arrives, Arcadi's there, like, in the safe house with his, like, legs up and, you know, relaxed. And then also it's a suitable suit for him to be in the cable room, yelling orders at the cable guy, the telex guy. No SIGs here. Unfortunately, um, too sensitive even for SIGs to talk about Operation Chronicle. And like the extremely broy, jocular, like hard slap on the back of good job. I'll be back for another message later. This suit, I agree with you. The suit felt very in control. The suit also felt very Soviet. Maybe it was just the gray of it all. <laughs> like the aesthetic choices seem to match the. I sometimes Arcadi doesn't always like match like what in my brain is the aesthetics of like yeah. the Soviet aesthetic, but this one really felt like it did. Yeah, and I don't know if there's like maybe it's a cut. I didn't pay enough attention. Is like the cut of the suit differently than the way the suits are cut for the. I mean, Stan is like the opposite of a fashion icon. Obviously, Oleg's fashion sense is bad as well. I would think it's worth pointing out, but. That's all right. We love our Cotty suit. We love, we love our Cotty suit. Like, that's it, right? And the number one Love Gorn appreciator will be with us next week. And as I was reminded today, there's a crucial Arcadi scene coming next week. Oh, I'm so excited. I would also like to note, we mentioned this a little bit earlier. So Fred, not only there's a parallel between Fred and Larrick and the place where Fred meets with Elizabeth and Philip is not dissimilar from the place where Elizabeth takes Jared to change and they stash the backpack that happened to have the tracking device in it. So there's like a certain parallel there, excuse me, but then also just the camera shot of Fred trudging through the snow with the camera kind of at a distance from him as he's like walking it, walking towards the structure, which is a really beautiful camera shot. As we've talked about it at length, like it's not that the Americans is particularly flashy in its cinematography, but there are moments like the surveillance shot that you pointed out earlier or this shot of Fred, which is, you know, literally like three and a half seconds long or something that really, really worked for me. I do think also like there's a certain artistic eye that they have brought to shooting Fred this season. Like Mm. this is not the first last week. Yeah. Yeah. Last week. Yeah, so I, like, I don't know how to read that, but, like, I'm intrigued by that. There's one kind of very obvious read in that Fred is, even when he is with Philip in disguise last week, is so alone that he is, like, so surrounded by desolation and emptiness around him, right? It's these abandoned, empty grain silos last week. It's the pure nothingness of there are trees on either side, but it's just like open snowy field and terrace in this episode. So that's a very obvious reading, but a possible one. I'm here for the obvious reading. I don't think there needs to be like hidden, hidden meaning for, for Fred, but I think like, you know, just uh, you have called out the camera angles around Fred a couple of times. And I, I like, I think it's important to recognize the consistency of, of, of that. Yeah. Also containing deep meaning and secrets. I have a question for you <laughs> oh about... God, what, an, what an amazing, amazing <laughs> transition. Yes. What's your question about? I have a question for you oh my about God. Stan's chest hair. So Stan and Nina are in bed cuddling slash discussing their desolate future. 
And is it that Stan's chest hair is so blonde or gray that the way that shot is lit, we can't see it? Or is it that he shaves or waxes his chest? What's your read of this second most important question of the pod? I feel like shaving one's chest was, like, very 80s. Like, I think there was, like, something masculine about that in the 80s. Or, like, it was coded masculine in the 80s. So I would would bet that it's that. Okay. We'll have to look out for that if Stan makes it through and makes it through shortlist in the future. Chest hair is something that's very important to me. This is a reveal. <laughs> Yossi, like the Yossi is your like Americans shipping is what? coming coming through very strongly. Always, yes, because the Israeli has great chest hair. Of course. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh, any other chest hair notes? No chest hair notes for this episode, but okay. maybe we'll have chest hair watch for uh, for the yeah, remainder of great. the seventeen thousand. Just keep episodes, adding yeah. segments. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's get into bar nostalgia, please. There's a lot here this week. There's a lot here. My first thing I have this in my notes: like missing kids and people easily giving up info about those missing children feels very eighties. If this show was set in the nineties, in the aughts, like. Larry couldn't just like sidle on up to the like agent at the know. train station to the janitor at the upstate New York train station. Yeah. Literally everyone, everyone that's anywhere and be like, Hey, have you seen this kid? Like people would be wary of this dude asking questions about a child. He does flash the badge to the ticket agent at the Amtrak station. Am I the only person who's like, I would have taken a very hard look at that badge and been like, that doesn't look like what a real badge looks like. (laughs) Or like, that's not like, show me your other ID. It's like, I went to pick up my parking pass at the university today. And they were like, show me your ID, show me your license. I was like, do you need a blood sample? Like (laughs) parking pass. Like what are, what's happening here? You know, like this was very eighties. The like, both the the ease with which people gave up information, but also like that missing kids, like you know, it's the age before cell phones, but it's like very eighty. There's something very eighties about this. Yeah, I, that's a, an important point to make when whether it's Stranger Things, whether it's Paper Girls, there's like this mini discourse about kids in the eighties had much more freedom to like ride yeah. their bikes around and do whatever, and this is like the flip side of that. Yes. So, yes. I great mean, call on like, this eighties nostalgia. I definitely like, I was just thinking about this. I, when we were not, well, it would have been a little bit in the eighties, but mostly in the early nineties. Like we used to ride our bikes like a few blocks away to the elementary school and like play on the playground for hours. My mom would not come with us. Like it was not far from our house, but like no adults. They didn't know. We told them where we were going, but we could have gone somewhere else. Like, that would not happen anymore. Like, that's just, like, now I'm, like, I tell my mom when I, like, drive somewhere and she lives in a different state. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And now it's, like, kids have phones and you parents will put it, you know, if you put a tracking app on the phone, yeah. like, you literally know where the kid is 24-7. Anyway, that's my first uh, entry into 80s nostalgia here. Incredible you, call. What about you? What are you thinking about 80s-wise? Sandy's turtleneck. <laughs> that she's wearing when she reveals to Stan that she's moving in with the guy oh from God. Est. 
is there been a, we've discussed turtlenecks on the Americans before. We've discussed the eightiesness of it all. The black gold patterning of this particular turtleneck really amplified the situation here for Sandy's yes. turtleneck. <laughs> yeah. I must say. I agree with you. The yeah, there's something about not only the turtleneck itself, but also the color scheme that like was just tacky enough for it to feel really 80s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not tacky, but incredible. Elizabeth's outfit that she's like, oh, I've been away driving Jared all night, and now I show up to the travel agency in one of like the best girl boss yeah. outfits ever that anybody has ever worn. Like, I- incredible. Definitely her best fit so far of this. It might be. It might, yeah. or at least her best like work fit. Elizabeth fit, like yes. the yeah. that like sh- she's wearing. Yeah, work. It's fit like or white, like, like white button down or Oxford or whatever. Yeah. Like a brown, like really well tailored jacket, like excellently tailored pants, like really, really great fit. And also, I feel like Elizabeth's outfits don't usually scream 80s, but this one definitely did. Yes. Good 80s, not dark yeah. 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the right amount of shoulder pads. The right amount. <laughs> That's true. There was, I think it does have a shoulder pad, but it's very minimalistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the jacket. It's a shaping thing, not a poofing thing. Excellent. The two genders. Um, excellent distinction. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> also, Philip's transmitter device, headphone setup in the basement. Oh, yeah. I love. Well, obviously, I'm here for audio equipment in a period really show, and it's not the first time this has happened. But I was really into it, and I think we should maybe consider recording our podcast on that equipment if we can find it. <laughs> I mean, not I sure can... how compatible it is with Zencaster. You know who I bet could find us some of that? Sean Hanley. My dad, Sean Hanley, <laughs> who loves Etsy. And I bet there's oh, like okay. something. On, he looks at Etsy for like motorcycle and Jeep parts. Are we talking about eBay? No, Etsy. My dad has like an Etsy account. Great. Like crafts. Because people also do like manly crafts on Etsy. <laughs> Every reveal about Sean Hanley that I get on and off air makes endears him to me more and more. Like not He's that he needed the help from what I've heard from Danielle before we <laughs> I started learning more about the details of Sean Hanley's life, but Sean Hanley just like texted the family group text yesterday, like Harry Styles Matilda is on FUV. Just wanted us to know. Yeah. None of us have radios. <laughs> <laughs> or at least not radios that can like tune into FUV, because that's in New York. Um, but he's like, he just wanted his daughters, the Harry stands in his life. Mm -hmm. He just wanted us to know. He's also Harry stand at this point. Oh, we have, I think fully converted him. It was the, it was the sledgehammer cover Mm -hmm. that like fully, he's like, I love this song. I've been singing sledgehammer for a week. (laughs) Incredible. Incredible. What movie Um, is Henry excited about? Or actually not that excited about now that I think about it. Like, critical of, but has yeah. a lot of aggressive details about, which spoke to my, like, general self. It spoke but, to, like, me. Yeah. <laughs> he grows up to, like, he grows up to be me hating on the MCU. That's One million percent. <laughs> One million percent. 
hating on things he never saw and has no interest in seeing. Ah, my favorite thing. (laughs) (laughs) He's super worked up about Wrath of Khan, which, like, you only get from context clues because he never actually says the title of the movie, which I loved. I really liked that. And it's not a Star Trek you know, nowhere. I did have yeah. to learn that from the Americans fandom wiki. Oh, I know. I'm like, I'm not a Star Trek fan. Um, I've seen like a couple of episodes here and there and mostly the like Shatner Star Trek, not any of the, the like newer stuff. Um, which is basically what Henry is sort of lamenting. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. <laughs> this thing 40 years ago, but this does qualify legitimately as newer stuff. Yeah, um, but I knew that this is what he was talking about because, like, I, I've seen a number of the movies, but I've never really seen the show. All right. I've got one more entry. Go for it. This, on the one hand, speaks to your investigation of Martha's emotional and cognitive state. And on the other hand, I think is extremely barred nostalgia for the unremembered 80s. Okay. The fact that Martha and Clark didn't talk about kids before getting married screams 80s heterosexuality to me. Like, didn't, shouldn't they have talked about that? Oh, um, about whether they were going to have kids and the fact that like that never came up is both a Clark probably purposely misleading Martha, but also is like, you got to figure that shit out, my friends. A million percent. I'm not sure how like 80s it is. I think it speaks more to Martha's like simultaneous like desperation and also just like blindness with regard to Clark. Because like I have, I have friends who like also didn't have that conversation and like now they're divorced, right? And like <laughs> as they should be, as they should yeah, be. Yeah. No, totally. And, like and like you typically amicable divorces yeah. or like whatever. But like I don't know if that is specifically eighties or there's something like specifically toxic about yeah. like that. But you know what? Uh, I'll I'll allow it in the in the borrowed unnostalgia yeah. of the. Yeah. Yeah, felt non-nostalgia. Um, felt non-nostalgia. Any, like any, any guesses? We haven't played this in a while. Any guesses about the title of the segment? Any, like, do we have any hope for resolving this? Absolutely not. I okay. hope that our guest next week has, like, looked it up but didn't tell you and gives oh. a guess. If he tells you, I'm going to be so mad. I'm never talking to him again if he tells you. That's a lie. I'm on record saying that. Part of me wants to text him and be like, will you please look it up and let me know? No. No no spycraft allowed. I won't. I won't. I won't. All right. Let's dig into minor character of the week. Let's. Who do we got? We've got the used car salesman where Stan yeah. goes to buy his shady ass car for Nina, played by Andrew Dolan. And Danielle, how did you react to this scene? In the beginning, I was like, okay, this is like kind of seedy, but like used car salesman seedy. Like there's something stereotypical about this, whatever. And then it just takes this turn into like gross. <laughs> and I was like, I don't like that there's a secret code for like exact for like buying a car for your mistress like i feel deeply uncomfortable about this yes he's buying a car for his niece which i also learned from the americans was code for for your mistress 
I did not know that. Used car salesman, like, is on top of that shit. He's oh, like, not my like, first trip to the rodeo to do precisely this. He's like, I don't have a niece. I <laughs> and I was like, what are those other things that you're making? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, this like, scene, I will say, I appreciate, like, Andrew Dolan, the actor's, like, just commitment to what can only be, a, you know, two and a half minutes of a appearance yeah. on the Americans and goes like full scuzzy on it. Yeah. I did a little research. Okay. Stan is spending way too much money on this fucking car for Nina, which fits perfectly. So the $3,400 he spends to buy this used car in 1982 is equivalent yeah. to 10.5 K today. If I had a niece, <laughs> I would not be getting them a car for ten and a half thousand dollars. But like, how much does a used car cost? I mean, today. that car that much or more than that. But like, why are you getting it? Well, we know why Stan's getting her like such a nice car, nice used car. Right. I like. I feel like. It's like that, and it's also, right, like, for it to go back to our earlier conversation, like, Stan is also overcompensating with Nina for, like, overcompensating for the loss of Sandy via Nina, Mm -hmm. right? Like, so, makes a ton of sense that he's buying a very expensive car. But also, who has the equivalent in today's money of 10K? Like, it's just a random FBI agent to be like, here, I've got this much fucking cash on my person to give to you for a car or for me to not pay the registration. This goes back to your earlier point about the Oleg. The kind of person who's yeah. dealing with Oleg, who's like, oh, let, me, let me just like... I'm, I'm in a foreign my, country. We, do, we don't have, we don't circulate U.S. dollars in my yeah. home country, but here's 5,000 bucks or whatever. What's, what was, what was Russian currency in the, in well, the 80s? Well, so Ru- cur- Ru- cur- currency during the Soviet Union is a complicated factor, but oh rubles, <laughs> but rubles are the currency. Rubles, okay. I was like, rubles is what jumped to mind, but like, did I see that in a cartoon? Maybe. I definitely uh, have uh, had rubles in my life in my four months in Russia. Wild. Yeah. Watching exchange rates, you know. <laughs> well, like that I that I know well. Um, but yeah, I, I will say Andrew Dolan committed to the bit, like I'm angry at the pun you have in our notes here. I okay, and I'm going to make it. So I appreciate that us naming the used car salesman, Andrew Dolan's our minor character of the week was also, Danielle, a vehicle for talking about this scene. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Let's go to the cave. We got to get out of this. We got to get out of the Thank goodness. Let's go to the cave. I turn, I turn to you. Uh, a classic, a throwback, um, epitome of Danielle's interests and yeah. Danielle in the cave. And I'm really, really excited about it. Where, who's going with us? Okay, so I want to take Sophocles' Antigone into the cave with us, and just, like, tragedy more generally. Yeah. There was something incredibly tragic about this episode. There's something about the, like, about both the sort of barreling forward towards these quite dismal endings that, like, we know they're going to be dismal. It's not quite clear for whom, right? Like, it's not quite clear, like, whose ending is going to, like entail the most suffering but this episode reminds us that like 
both of the paths, like the, both of the tracks we laid out are just laden with like suffering and frustration and uncertainty. And I feel like those are things like that is like, that's the whole vibe of tragedy. Yeah. But I'm thinking Antigone in particular, because in Antigone, you get the titular Antigone, um, the heroine, and then her uncle Creon, who's sort of like the her foil. And both of them are incredibly stubborn and unwilling to move from their positions. Antigone, like, buries her brother and then and disobeys the law that Creon has made and, and then maybe buries him again and, like, and refuses to relent until the very end. But, like, she, basically, like, the path to her death is already, like, laid out for her. Right. And similarly, Creon like refuses to be like lenient on his niece, um, who has like, you know, lost her father and there's this whole, all this other stuff, refuses to be lenient on his niece, niece, like doubles down about the law, like has a, a huge conflict with his son, who's also his niece's betrothed, um, which then leads to the death of his son, which then leads to the death of Antigone. And there's something about the stubbornness of both Antigone and Creon, like, and the way in which the sort of the state or the authority of the state yep. is pitted against a sort of like yep. non-state actor or like a different uh, source of authority in Antigone, it's the gods, right? Like religion. There's something about all of that in our discussion of escalation and, and, and the way in which escalation is is impacted by and impacts intimacy and and all of these different things like that just feels really palpable in this episode brilliant journey to the cave <laughs> that was a true like danielle and her element moment and i really brain. really enjoy watching that happen and listening to that happen the connection of not only tragedy but antigone to this episode i think really resonates in so many of the different storylines that we experience in this episode, uh, probably most of all, I think like Arcadi as the Creon figure and Nina as the yeah. Antigone figure, the like yeah. authority of the state versus the woman who is contesting the authority Absolutely. of the state in various ways. And like the stubbornness of both of them in their positions, Absolutely. I think is resonating, but we could go into other characters as well. And all of that, as you point out in case within this, broader structure that is incredible of tragedy that is incredibly capacious and variable even as it insists on central kind of narrative and thematic and ethical and moral elements and the way that that gets played out in Antigone right you have you know you have many smart things to say about a number of political theorists we both like have smart things to say about it as well and just the, like the interaction of like how does this well-known structure narratively impact, you know, the actual content of the story being told is a kind of endlessly fascinating thing. And I really appreciate you bringing our attention to it with this episode. Listen, I'm always happy to talk about tragedy, as you know, and like, honestly, kind of surprised that it was Antigone and not one of the various Euripidean tragedies that I spend all of my life Shocking, um, especially because I believe you were working on writing about one of them earlier today. But, but yeah, I think like this is something I have been feeling as we've talked more and more. And like today we're talking about escalation, but as we've talked more and more about the way the season has been building, right. And all of these different pieces being connected to 
to one another. Like, again, like just the, the tragic nature of it all, the, the ability of us as the audience to see that like the crash is coming. It's not quite clear what the specifics of that crash are, but, but it's, it looms and it looms large over the entire series and I think like that to me is is like is linked to like the tragic sort of character of the show. Amazing. Are we what are we doing with Sophocles? What are we doing with Antigone? Listen, Antigone dies in her cave, so <laughs> I think okay. we leave her down here, but it's just because it is her tragic fate. Yeah. Um and we we can't break that loop for her. Yeah. Fair enough. It's like uh she's gotta push the button. Every 108 minutes. <laughs> Great reference. <laughs> Sophocles is like one of the puppet masters. Yeah. We, yeah. That's exactly the role for we, him. We add in fact, cause he's like doing some mimetic things. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, John, we have a new sort of sub segment in the cave. Uh, tell us a little bit about it and then tell us uh, what you're going to do with it. All right. We actually followed through on our promise from last week. We're just yes. sui generous out of nowhere. We didn't discuss it. Just organically emergent from the virtual potential of our podcast and friendship came the idea of theory ship where we are like this character in the episode should read this particular piece of political theory, which is mine and Danielle's kind of own version of doing like fanfic shippy sorts yeah. of things, except it's the political theory version. Cause we're in the cave and the whole podcast <laughs> is the cave. So that's how we're going to do yeah. it. Some weeks we'll spend like a lot of time or a medium amount of time on it. Other time we're just doing it to see if the other person will laugh and find amusing the connection we make. And there's like a half a sentence to be said this yeah. week, Danielle, in our first theory ship of the Americans, although there was a theory ship in the finale of Moon Knight, for those of yes. you listening to both um, or listening at all, we'll take though. Is I'll take either. I think, and this actually, I didn't you know, know this was going to happen. I think speaks to your journey to the cave or your, your bringing okay. to me into the cave. I would like to give our dear beloved Arkady some Bakunin. Because, like, Arkady's all like, this state will decide what is right. And I think we need to read some angry Bakunin being like, what about the state being an instrument of oppression? What about the party being an instrument of oppression? Let's disrupt Arkady's worldview. Let's let him keep the suit. He can wear the suit while reading Bakunin. He's in his office. He's got some vodka poured, but he is reading Bakunin. I love it. I what a what an inspired choice. I never would have picked it, but I really like it. And Thank I think you. you're right. It's like it, it's not totally far afield from the the tragedy in the cave. Yeah, and can I give a bonus theory ship without explanation? Please. Let's yeah. give let's give Paige some Nietzsche. <laughs> Paige needs all the Nietzsche. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh my god! All right, I love this new segment. I can't wait to think even more about who I'm going to make these people read. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure our guests next week will absolutely love our new edition. I feel like, wait, I have one. Oh, please. I feel like Martha needs some like bell hooks or something. (laughs) Martha needs some black feminism. She needs to like wake the fuck up and like, you know, stop, uh, participating in the oppression that Philip like, 
puts upon her. And I think like some Lord, Lord and hooks a little bit of like hooks is killing rage. Lord uses of anger. Like I think Martha could go a long way with that. Yeah. And there were actually almost in the right time period for that. Like the early hooks is coming out in what? 82, 83, 84. So we're in 1982 at the moment. So So, it works even more. I love it. Amazing. Amazing. Well, we have come to the end of the episode. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, thanks as always to producer Amy. Um, And up next, we have next Thursday, American season two, episode 13, with the returning John Keller. Uh, The episode is called Echo, which I feel excited about. It's almost as if John Keller is like making an echo of his previous appearance on the podcast. What a perfect, perfect, (laughs) perfect way to think about Keller. you mean (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well... Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It was created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball. Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, John McMahon. And joining me on the other... Let me do that again. I should probably (laughs) enunciate my words. I don't know. I like it when you don't enunciate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. (laughs) Then you've enjoyed every second I've talked on the Not Quite Great Books podcast. (laughs) Ah, three, two...